Assalamu alaikum. And if you want to know how to pronounce it, I wrote it on the screen, on the board. Whenever you greet a Muslim with Assalamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you, the custom is they will reciprocate that and they will say alaikum salam. So, Assalamu alaikum. Good to be with you. My name is Gerald Babanajad. I'm visiting you from the Pacific Union Conference on behalf of your brothers and sisters in the West Coast. The work that we do on behalf of the church is to bring the knowledge of the religion of Islam to Adventist congregations and to introduce Advent, the Advent message, the three angels message to the Muslim community that God is providentially bringing to America. What we will be discussing is first and foremost, biblical precepts, biblical foundations, biblical knowledge that by and large, with all due respect, we have overlooked and we have bypassed to a great extent. And that is why we are experiencing such horrendous challenges in conveying the message of Christ to the Muslim community, both in America and across the, across the, uh, the world, but in specific, the area that we will refer to the 1040 window. Um, by and large, what we will do will be in two parts. Today, I'm going to go through broad perspectives. In some cases, I will get details, but not so much, to bring you a perspective as to what Islam is about, how Adventism relates to Islam <coughs> and the world events, especially historical events, that by and large will give us a foothold as to what this whole thing is all about. Because most Adventists are exposed to watching so much news, so much media. I just got to write, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not speaking to the person who gave me the right. Did you give me a ride this morning? Some lady gave me a ride. I was hitchhiking. I didn't wait for the bus. So I hitchhiked and somebody gave me a ride. And this is what they said. If it wasn't for Ishmael, we wouldn't be in this trouble. <laughs> and I, I said, please come to my seminar. Please, please come because I have a lot to share with you. Tomorrow, we will do a training seminar, which will be in three parts. In specifics, biblical accounts, biblical narratives. Second part, we will study some passages from the Quran, the Islamic holy book. Pastor John, it is an honor to have you here today. Good to see you. And uh, the third section, what happens? What are the consequences when the message of the Advent church, when the three angels message is missing from the world of Islam? What are the consequences? What happens? And this is what the world is going through right now. And we will bring this to your uh, perspective, hopefully, tomorrow. Tomorrow we will have a, an allotted time for question and answer. Uh, I will do as much as I can with today's time to cover the, the topic. If we don't get to get to your questions and answers, which at times they get pretty heated, we will have a designated uh, time for tomorrow. By the way, I also will be in the Fletcher Church on Sabbath morning. I will be in your church here Sabbath morning, but I'm going to play music. So I'll hope to do as much uh, as I can with, with the piano. But uh, in the meantime, I will go to Fletcher Church, and I will be doing a seminar in the Fletcher Church.
Thank you for having us. Thank you, Pastor, for allowing us to minister to your wonderful congregation. Thank you. Uh, I think I start at 10, 10.30, 10.30, yeah. But we don't want you to leave the campus here. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. I'd like to make a slight correction. The message or the title of the series in your schedule was spelled out, Jesus through a Muslim's eye. Um, a little correction, it needs to read seeing Jesus through Muslim eyes. So this is the wider perspective, it is the wider approach, and it is it goes way deeper than just an individual account, which at times could be subjective, but this is what we want to do. We want to look in general, what we will be do during the series, we want to look at the reality of Christ through the eyes, through the paradigm of Muslims across the world. What we will do today, I will expose you, I will introduce you to the basics, and we will build on these basics tomorrow, uh, tomorrow at 4 o'clock. The map that you see on the screen, the areas of the world that are in blue color are the areas that are predominantly Christian. That includes North and South America, Europe, Russia, Australia, Sub-Saharan Africa. The areas you should see in green are the areas that are predominantly Muslim. Then you see the Hindu breakdown. Then you see the Buddhist breakdown. So this gives you a color perspective as to the concentration of world religions. The area that we concentrate both geographically and conceptually, and, and I will explain that as we go, is the area that is known as the 1040 window. In this section of the world live over 4.6 billion people. The majority of the world population is concentrated in this area. Of this number, around 1.5 billion are Muslim. And of that vast number, it is very difficult to have hard numbers, hard statistics, but of that vast number, between 0 0.01 and 0.001% has been reached by the gospel. So we have an ocean of people that the gospel has yet to make an impact, but it will make the impact. Why? Because Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. I'm a product of this. And I stand before you as a testimony that the message of Christ will penetrate. However, the church needs to be equipped in order to do this. What we are happening, what we begin to understand, many Christian leaders and many Christians are beginning to realize that you cannot bring the gospel to Muslims the way you bring to non-Muslims. And the challenges have been paramount with all the world events, with all the violence, and with all the, you know, the events ensuing from September 11, that in and of itself has added thousandfold to this challenge of how do you ever bring the gospel to Muslims? What we have begun to understand, reaching out to the mind and to the heart of a Muslim has 
its own paradigm. In other words, we need to understand the worldview, the ideology, the perspectives, the beliefs of Muslims if we are to convey the gospel to them. Since the ensuing, since the emergence of modern-day radical Islam, which pretty much was introduced to the world by Ayatollah Khomeini, how many of you still remember that name, Ayatollah Khomeini? Wow, so many of you. Uh, I'm a product of that revolution. I was a 13-year-old when the revolution in Iran happened, and I remember Ayatollah Khomeini made one speech. I will export this brand of Islam to the rest of the world. And he did. And the world is reaping what this was what this ushered in. Since 1979 onward, this area of the world, which is basically the cradle of Islam, pretty much shut down, closed down to any form of missionary work. Any standard missionary, any traditional missionary work came to a halt. Just for instance, the country of Iran, we had over 20 churches during the Shah of Iran. We had over, I think, four or five hospitals. We had two schools, and one of them I went to when my mom accepted the Advent message. We were supposed to go to Adventist schools. And so one of the things we were blessed with was the Adventist teaching in Iran. But what happened when the revolution developed, when it was pretty much it dethroned any form of monarchy and brought the foundational or the fundamental form of Islam, there was no space or place for us to live, and so we had to leave. And what happened? All the missionaries left, all American, European missionaries left, leaving behind, based on the estimates that I have today, and I spoke with Henry about a month ago, what we have left behind is in the neighborhood of about $300 million worth of real estate. Gone. But what we realized is this. It seemed for over three decades that Satan closed all the doors on the ground. But God opened the gates of heaven. And what do I mean by that? We realized the satellite technology, mobile apps, internet, social networking, is the means by which you can connect with a Muslim on a level that even not the best and the most pristine form of missionary work was able to accomplish. Because you go to their home, and they can spend time, see time with the message that they're receiving. And it's incredible that we began produce and broadcast into countries like Iran, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Arab Emirates, Turkey, the entire European continent. The last count that I had, it is very difficult to have hard numbers and hard statistics, but the last number I had, by God's grace, we have been able to reach over 600 million viewers. But we wanted to know more. We wanted to know what the effects of these programs are in the lives of Muslims. But since we don't have the luxury of picking up the phone or talking to people on the streets, you know, because we're pretty much putting everybody's life on the line, it's difficult to have hard numbers, but we were involved in a research, in a covert research, that we did partner with Christian Broadcasting Network. Uh, Pastor Robertson, how many of you know Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN? 
Pat Robertson broadcasted our programs on his network for three years, sometimes 15 hours a week without charging us a single dime. He said, as long as you want to reach the unreached, you're more than welcome to use my network. This is Farsi, Arabic and Turkish, but predominantly Farsi because I'm Farsi speaker and it was concentrating to that area of the world. In year 2010 and 2011, we were involved in this covert research and we found out just in the country of Iran that is pretty much in the news as a sponsor of terrorism and every menace you can ever imagine. So they say, just in the country of Iran, between the years 2010 and 2011, over 874,000 Iranian Muslims accepted Christ as their savior just by watching satellite television programs. Now, why does that happen in America? That's another story for another day. But one of the things we're realizing, we need a shift of paradigm. If we are to reach Muslims, we have to think differently. And I will bring you some examples, some precepts from the scriptures to help us understand further. Let me give you a different perspective. The countries on this map that are in beige color are the areas that up to 90% by now have heard the gospel. So up to 90% of North and South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Europe, Russia, Australia, by now have heard the gospel. What remains is pretty much 10%. So up to 90% have heard the gospel. Now whether people make a decision for the gospel, that's not part of this statistic. But the actual hearing of the gospel and being exposed to the gospel is pretty much up to 90% in these areas. But if you notice the color chart gets darker, it brings us back to the dark maroon color areas of the Middle East this Asia, North Africa, all the way to the Indonesian islands, between 65 and 100%, the dark areas, have yet to hear the gospel and have yet to hear that Jesus is coming back. That is why I'm fully convinced, as a servant of the Lord, I am fully convinced the reason why Christ is not back yet, has not returned, is because the work of the Great Commission is not accomplished. What is happening is the paradigm is changing. And one of the things we have to understand is this. To do ministry in America has also changed because the landscape in America has changed. 20 years ago, compared to now, America is a completely different world. And unless we're willing to embrace that, we're going to get frustrated. 33% of the world is considered Christian. Between 33 and 40% have been evangelized. What remains unreached is the 27 to 33% of the world population. The number or the percentage of re unreached amounts to 2.5 to 3 billion. So as we are worshiping here today in these camp meeting series, please, I beg of you, remember one thing. Almost three billion have not heard the gospel. However, however, there are some, some foundational thoughts 
that we should embrace. We found out it took us about maybe four years for, for doing this work, and some of the experts and some of the demographic experts in Andrew Seminary have also helped us with this. Over one billion Muslims do not have a Christian friend. We can reverse it. Over one billion Christians do not have a Muslim friend. At the end of the day, we don't know each other as friends. Okay? There are thousands of contributing reasons. Like I said, nobody has any shortage of this. Just last night, uh, over 80 people were killed in Kabul, over 300 maimed by a truck bomb. This morning, Philippines, a hotel was overtaken by ISIS sympathizers. Who knows how many people have been killed? One of the things we have to do is this. Unless we are willing to do it the Lord's way, otherwise the gospel will only circulate and regurgitate among the Christian community. Okay? Ellen White, over 130 years ago, in her book Desire of Ages, she said, God has providentially allowed all these foreigners to come to America. That includes me and many of you sitting here today. That more than anything else, she said, they can hear the good news from God's people in freedom. So we don't have to jeopardize the lives of hundreds of missionaries, and we don't have to spend gazillions of dollars in for, for missions. God has providentially brought all these people to America, that they can hear the good news from God's people in freedom. In turn, they can transfer the good news, they themselves, to their respective people and respective countries. This way, she said, the work of the Great Commission will be accomplished. Okay? But many of us are very affected and influenced by media, by rhetoric, what comes down the pike. Every time I have to travel abroad, I get a friendly call from the Homeland Security agents because of my Muslim last name. This last time I was going to the Middle East, and I was boarding Air Canada out of LAX. And as I'm going through the funnel, you know, you're done with TSA, everything is done. As you're about to enter the funnel of the plane, I got my name. They couldn't pronounce my last name either, Pastor. So they said, oh, Gerald, Gerald, Gerald. And so I looked, and two guys with the badges and the guns and everything. So they pulled me out. One went through my briefcase, pulled out my computer, asked for password. They went through the whole thing. The other guy went through my phone. So for about 20 minutes, I was being grilled. And then finally, they realized I'm not a terrorist. So one of the, one of the agents who had my phone, he got close to me and he said, let me see if I got this right. You're going to the Middle East to preach about Jesus to Muslims? I said, that's what I do. He looked at his partner, gave me the phone. He said, good job, man. <laughs> Even Homeland Security knows bombing is not the solution, <laughs> but the gospel is. However, we got to do it the master's way. The Lord Jesus mingled with the people. If you agree with what I say, say amen. The Lord Jesus mingled with the people. 
How many of us would like to step in the footsteps of the master? He mingled with the people. He ministered to them in their time of need. He won their trust. See, unless we build a trust relationship, in other words, you have absolutely no doubt the reason I say, how are you? I meant, how are you? I don't have any other motives. The reason why I asked you to come to dinner to my house is because you, I, wanna, I want you to get exposed to my wife's cooking rather than me giving you a Bible track. You see what I'm saying? The genuine trust relationship, only if we mingle as the master did, only when we minister in their time of need, and I will get to that a bit later on, only when we build a trust relationship, we can bid them to follow. By and large, we tend to overstep, skip the first three stages. We put up meetings, we put up seminars, we put up crusades. Please don't use the term crusade with Muslims. It has bad connotation. We put out evangelistic outreaches, and we want people to follow. But if we are not willing to go through the first three steps, I'm sorry, but many of us get frustrated. Baptisms happen, but at the end of the year, we are dealing with about 40% attrition rate. In other words, 40 out of 100 are not in church at the end of the year. This needs to change. The people, the body of Christ, needs to act like the Lord did. Mingle, minister, win people's trust, and follow. What we have done to help this outreach, part of our ministry is outside of America. With, with God's providence, about two years ago, I got exposed and I got acquainted to many Muslims in the Middle East who had accepted the gospel, who had accepted the Advent message, but our unions and our fields did not have any work for them. So when I came back from, from the Middle East, I contacted many of our partner ministries, including Gospel Outreach in Walla Walla, Washington, and I said, there is tremendous amount of talent in the Middle East. These people are so tech savvy. They're so technology oriented. They literally can shoot a rocket with an iPhone. They literally can do that. I said, if Satan has his claws on, him, on them, why can't we be the means by which God can use these guys? And so by God's grace, we have designed websites exclusive for Muslim viewers that they come on, on our website. They notice we don't get argumentative. We don't, we don't debate. We don't prove them wrong. We don't prove ourselves right. We engage. And the way we engage is we bring the Advent message in context that Muslims can relate to. And I will get to that throughout today and tomorrow afternoon. So this is for Farsi, Arabic, and Turkish speakers. It's called ahd Jadid. If you want to take that down, and if, you, if there's anything you want to do, pass it on to a Muslim. If he, he or she is from the country of Iran, Afghanistan, you can give this website to them. We also have an English website, A Sure Harvest, that is for English-speaking audiences. We have study guides on this network, on this website, for Adventists that can study about Islam as Adventists, the comfort of your home. Muslims can get on the same site, learn about Adventism and the comfort of their home, and we've done everything that we can to, to make sure security and safety is priority. And so I invite you, if you want to be educated, if you want to have a follow-up, 
means, by all means, you can use our website. Sure. Ahde Jadid in Farsi means New Testament or New Covenant. Okay? All right. And this is for the English speaking audience. Now, let me let me bring some different perspectives to this. This is basically the you know the overall report. So I'm not in the in the subject matter yet. Of the 28 Adventist fundamental beliefs, Muslims resonate strongly with 20 of them. Evangelical Christians resonate with only 13 of them. So when it comes to our fundamental biblical beliefs, we have more in common with Islam than what we do with evangelical America. And this is a unique thing because many, many evangelical Christians, including some of my Presbyterian pastor friends, one pastor friend said, we have changed the way we do communion in our church. He said, we brought, we invited some Muslim guests with their families to our church, and it happened that we were having communion. They never came back. Months later, he said, we were able to connect. And the reason why they were not comfortable in coming back, they said, there's alcohol in your church, and we don't consume alcohol. So my brother Gerald, we have changed the way we do communion. We are using grape juice. Has God uniquely positioned this movement to be able to do this work? Now here's something you will repeat throughout the series. God did not raise Adventism so we can be another flavor among Christianity. He raised this movement to finish the work of the Great Commission. Is that the best amen you can do? God has raised this movement to finish the work of the Great Commission. Here's something that we do that is very unique. We help our local congregations, Adventist churches, to do joint worship service with the Muslim community. The recent one that we did was in Southern California. We had a joint worship service attended by Adventists and Muslims in the sanctuary in our church in El Cajon in Southern California. We had a worship service for two hours. We did the worship service in a question and answer format. I was moderating it so things would not get out of control. Adventists asked every question that they had was from, from Muslims and we had Muslim panel. We had two mosque leaders, we had doctors and the Muslim community got to ask any question that they had from the Adventist community. We had doctors from two doctors from Loma Linda University and the two pastors of the local churches. For two hours, we engaged. Afterwards, we had dinner. We kissed and hugged, and everybody went home. Nobody got hurt. And this is one, th one thing that I would strongly recommend us doing on the church, at, at the church plateau. This is extremely important for Adventists to get exposed to the Muslim community and Muslims to get exposed to Adventism. And I will build on this, why this is so critical. And finally, the finances are extremely critical. And this is what I would strongly recommend to our leaders in our churches. We're spending over 80% of our 
funds for the mission in sponsoring missions that go to Christian countries. Over 18% we're spending in countries that we have been to almost 70, 80 years. But in order to reach the almost 3 billion unreached, we're pretty much working with 2% of the funds. Okay? So something, something for you to consider. This is the name of our, I'm sorry. Well, let me, let me get that. I'm not here for that. I'm here to give you the education, and I will give you the, the tools for you to decide. Okay? Here's our, the address of our ministry. We're located in Southern California. Um, I'm there uh, when I'm not traveling, and we do have our two congregations that we pastor in the Southern California area, which is comprised of majority Middle Eastern. Let me go to the message that I have for you today. We will have some por portions for question and answer, but let me, let me get to as much as I can. There is a journey that began deep in the pages of the book of Genesis 4,000 years ago. Let me give you the background. This is the second time that Hagar, Ishmael's slave girl or slave woman who gave birth to Ishmael's to Abraham's firstborn Ishmael Abraham was forced to make this painful decision the bible says the house of Abraham was not a place for two wives to live so he was forced to make this decision of letting go of Ishmael and Hagar gave him provisions they left they're in the middle of the desert Provisions have run out, food has run out, water has run out. They're about to die, destitute. The Bible says the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar. This is from Genesis 21, 18 to 20. I'll read it in two portions, and I will ask you a couple questions. The Bible says, the angel said to Hagar, get to your feet, lift the child up, hold him in your arms, because I will make of him a great nation. Who is the child being spoken of in this passage? Who is the speaker? You see, it starts with the angel, but we know that no angel ever blessed anybody into anything in the Bible. Who is it that does always the blessing? God. Phenomenons like this in the Old Testament are known as the angel of the Lord appearing. There are some pockets outside of Adventism, but the Advent unique understanding is that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ before his incarnation in Bethlehem. All right? Are, you are we in agreement? Here's, here's with your permission. I'm going to read the passage this way. Then Jesus said to Hagar, get to your feet, lift the child up. He is about 16 years of age by now. Lift the child up, hold him in your arms, because I will make of him a great nation. Did Jesus keep this promise? See, this is what we want to know. Did he keep the promise? And if he did, how did he keep his promise? And why is it so critical for us Adventists to know? Look at the second half. Then God opened her eyes. She saw a well full of water. 
She went to it, filled her water skin, gave the child a drink. God was with the child, and he grew up and lived in the wilderness of Paran. The Bible says God was with Ishmael, and where did he ultimately settle? Paran. And I will address the great a bit later on. Where is Paran? This is where Paran is. Northwestern corner of Saudi Arabia. This is where he settled. Incidentally, another famous city, city of Uz, is in Saudi Arabia. Who do you know that came from the city of Uz? Job. The first book of the Bible, which most scholars agree it's the book of Job, and I firmly believe Moses wrote it, the first book of the Bible is about the life of an Arab. You want to know how God deals with Arabs? Read the book of Job. This is what Job will bring into perspective because Job, of all the books of the Old Testament, is the anomaly. It's the most unusual book, unusual setting, unusual theology, unusual interaction because God is dealing with a non-Jew context. And if you want to know the perspective and the wider view of the book of Job, keep this in mind. It is written to an Arab audience. Move on. In the mind of many Christians, I can dare to say, in the mind of over 90% of Christians, including Adventists, as soon as Ishmael exits the house of Abraham, that is the end of Ishmael. Am I right? Isn't that what most Christians think? That's the end of it. He made a cameo appearance. He's gone done with. Let's see if the Bible corroborates. Let's see if the Bible supports that line of thought. Column to the left, Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Column to the right, Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. Then they separated, right? Did they ever join again? The Bible says in the 25th chapter of Genesis, Abraham died. Time for his funeral. By this time, Abraham has six more other sons through Keturah. His other wife, slave wife, but she was a wife. Isn't this interesting? He has six more sons, but the Bible says Isaac only sent word to Ishmael. Daddy has passed. Come, let's bury him. So Isaac is honoring the firstborn of Abraham, which is Ishmael. They came. They buried together their father. Funerals back then lasted anywhere between 30 to 40 days. Not minutes as we do today. So when they got together, they got together. Move 220 years forward to the time of Joseph. Do you remember Joseph? Who betrayed Joseph? His own blood brothers. Threw him in the well, left him to die, right? Who came to the rescue? The Bible says Ishmaelite traitors just happened to be passing by. Isn't this interesting? The descendants of Isaac betrayed Joseph, who was a type of who? Jesus. Threw him in the well, left him to die, so literally they killed him. How did God rescue Joseph? Through the descendants of Ishmael, who happened to be passing by. They were the ones that took him to Egypt, and the whole world knows the story of Joseph. Move 430 years forward to the time of Moses. How old was Moses when he fled Egypt? 
Was he ready at 40 years of age to lead Israel out of captivity? Then why is this that in the mind, in the psyche of most Christians, the experience of Moses begins in Egypt, Pharaoh's palace. The next thing is Mount Sinai crossing the Red Sea and the whole thing. The Bible says he needed some training. He fled Egypt. Where did he go? The Bible said he went to the desert of Midian, to the house of Jethro, a priest of Midian. Where is Midian? That's where Midian Desert is, right in the settlement of Paran. That's where Ishmaelites settled. In fact, this is where all the six sons of Keturah, Abraham's other six sons, they settled in the wilderness of Paran. That area, whole area, became home to what the Bible calls the children of the East. Something else also very critical happens to be in that area. You know what it is? Mount Sinai, who says? Paul in his letter to Galatians, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai, where? Then why is millions and millions of Christians pouring in trillions and trillions of dollars into Israel, looking, going to a tour, looking at a range of mountains? This is the mountain of God when it has nothing to do with the actual mountain of God of the Bible. The actual mountain, the Bible, and also the congregation that I have the privilege of pastoring, we have two archaeologists. These guys are crazy archaeologists. Some of the stuff that they do is creative. In other words, not legal. Um, <laughs> by God's grace, I'm going to join them in April of next year. This is Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. The Bible says it's in Saudi Arabia. Archaeologists says it's in Saudi Arabia. Then why? Don't Christians acknowledge that? You see, I'm trying to address some of the prejudice, some of the bias ha that has developed and has in so ingrained itself in the fabric of Christian thinking. This is one of the contributing reasons. Let me move on. They brought back some of the rocks from the peak. Burnt rock on the outside, normal rock on the inside. There's not a single volcano there. We'll get that tomorrow. I will address it a bit tomorrow. Now. Someone that is the most critical to the Christian faith, next to Christ, according to the Bible, who is it? Apostle Paul. This is very strange. Apostle Paul is reminiscing on his experience on the road to Damascus, that the Lord appeared to him. He lost his sight, literally lost his mind. A few days later, he regained it back. The Lord appeared to him, told him, I have a mission for you, but first, you have to do something. Guess what happened? Paul is writing this to the church of Galatia, and this is how he begins. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me or to me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. I did not talk to any human being when I met the Lord on the road to Damascus. I didn't go anybody. Go to anybody, I didn't want anybody's opinion. Neither did I go to Jerusalem, to them which were apostles before me, but I went into where? 
and returned again to Damascus. Tell me, my brethren and sisters, why in the world did Paul go to Arabia? We have never addressed this. The one who defined for us what Christ did, the one who defined for us what the power of the cross was, the one who defined for us what salvation is all about, he began his work first by going to Arabia. So why did he go to Arabia? Let, let some of this stuff simmer. Let's, let, it, let it play around. I'm not here to bring you a comfortable message. I'm from the Middle East. We're not comfortable people. Uh, but I want, you, I want you to consider, I want you to embrace some of these that we've just read. Am I right? We just read over these passages. And then we ask, wait, wait a minute. Why in the world did he go to Arabia? First of all, he says, I already knew what I wanted to do. I didn't need anybody's input. I didn't need anybody's approval. I already know what to do. But first, I have to go to Arabia. Think about that. Why did he go there? My question to you, did Jesus keep his promise? First of all, the word grace in Hebrew has multiple definitions. Some of them I'd like to share with you. The word gadol means mighty, large, numerous in numbers, loud. Does this resemble anybody or any group you all know? Large, mighty, numerous, and numbers. If you lived 1,400 years ago, and you were in the wilderness of Paran, where Ishmaelites settled, you would look at those settlements and you say, hmm, there's a pocket here, there's a couple pockets there, there's a settlement here, great, numerous in number, mighty, I don't think so. Until a direct descendant of Ishmael by the name Abdul Muttalib became the grandfather of one who the world knows as Prophet Muhammad. And look what happened. As we sit here today, Islam, who is the religion of the descendants of Ishmael, through Prophet Muhammad, is numbering 1.7 billion. Many scholars believe by the end of the decade, they will hit the 2 billion mark. Did Jesus keep his promise? Is Jesus a respecter of people? He keeps his promise. Isn't this fascinating? 4,000 years passed from that incident in the middle of the desert. A woman that was forsaken, destitute, left to go. The Lord appeared to her. I will make of him a mighty nation. We are eyewitnesses of this. Satan has convinced many of us, be afraid of these people. Stay away from them. Have nothing to do with these people. Just watch CNN and Fox News. That will give you enough to persuade you. Right? And what have we done? We have 
kept the message to our own, back and forth. We packaged it to our own, nevertheless. We take members from one church, plant them in another church, we call them church growth. Yet, in the last 20 years, the Muslim population in America has grown 85 1994, there were about 600 to 800 mosques and prayer centers. Today, 3,600 plus. Some of the mosques are side by side to Adventist church. And I will tell you one account, one interesting account at the end of the message today. Food for thought. Could the religion that this came with be also part of the promise. Could the religion of Islam be part of the promise? The Lord has kept his word. 1.7 billion is a good way to keep a word, man. And it happens to come with a religion. My question to us all, could this religion be part of the promise? So keep that also in your mind. See, I'm throwing a lot of things. So let that circulate. Let me give you a little background. What was the state of the Christian church when Islam came on the scene? The first three centuries of the Christian era, in my humble opinion, were the most brilliant, the most fantastic, the most incredible time in the Christian church's era. Three centuries Christians were brutally, savagely murdered, persecuted. Millions, between 7 to 10 millions, many scholars believe in the first three centuries, Christians died for their faith. No matter how many Christians were dying, the church was growing. Rome was killing left and right, the church was growing. Pure faith, pure hope. Every time the believers, every time the, the followers of Christ met with each other, Maranatha, pastor, brother, how are you? And the brother would say, Maranatha, Gerald, how are you? Maranatha in Aramaic was the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming. We have evidence, archaeological evidence. Pastor John, you might be aware of this. Before the first century was out, the gospel had reached Nepal. Mountains and the plateau of Tibet. Before the first century was out. Yet today... With every conceivable technology at our fingertips, smartphones, not so smartphones, mobile apps, internet, satellite TV, everything, we still have over 3 billion that have not reached. You know, I'm bringing that contrast to put juxtapose what the church must be and what the church is. All right? Until 600 A.D., between 300 and 600, the Christian church went through a huge transformation. Beginning 300s, Rome realized that it cannot kill more Christians. The more it killed, the bigger the church got. So let's change tactics. Little by little, Rome began to give level of freedom, legality to the Christian church. Christians began to experience freedom. Even Constantine and the continuing line of Caesars began to embrace Christianity for reasons that we still don't know to this day. 
But Christianity began to experience a level of freedom. Christians could build churches now. They could go to church without being killed. And so the Christian church began to enter uh, an era of freedom, legality, institutionalization. That was good. That was welcome, long overdue. But as soon as freedom and liberty and, and relief came to the Christian church, something happened, something very sinister began to happen. Christians began to group in dominant churches, small churches, fringe churches, European dominant churches, mainly the Church of Rome, began little by little to start putting pressure on small fringe churches and accepting some weird dogmas and weird religion, weird theology. Pretty soon, Christians began to criticize each other. Some of the most incredible, unbelievable, out-of-this-world, twisted theologies began to creep into the Christian church between the ages of 300 A.D. and 600. Church fathers were not in agreement among each other. It's incredible when you read some of the background of the church fathers, Alexandria, Antioch, Antioch, Persia, Jerusalem, you realize the church fathers were arguing among themselves about the nature of God. One church, some church fathers would say Jesus, had, Jesus was only human being. Another church father would say he was only divine. Some church fathers, believe it or not, they believe Jesus had two bodies. One body went on the cross, one body went back up to heaven. So they would not even agree among themselves who Jesus was. The church of Rome had established itself by 600 as Emporium Millennium which means the millennial kingdom. So no need for Jesus to come back anymore. Mary was elevated to the state of divinity. True believers in the word began to realize Europe is not a place to live for a true Christian. And so persecution, death sentences, Many scholars believe more Christians died in the hand of other Christians than in the hand of Rome. And many Christians began to flee Europe. And they moved into central part of Turkey, known as Cappadocia or Cappadocia, and lived in these caves, homes, and cities in these volcanic rocks for the next 480 years. You should see some of the walls of these caves. Primitive drawings of Christian stories, Jesus' miracles, some of his sermons, some of, some of the, rising, the raising of the dead, walking on the water. So they did everything to preserve the memory of Jesus on the walls of these caves, whereas Europe was not a place that was honoring Christ anymore. And the worst of all, in my humble opinion, was that the return of Jesus became something obsolete, unnecessary for the dominant churches of Europe, mainly the Church of Rome. No need for Jesus to come back. This was the state of Christianity when Islam came on the scene. This was the state of the Christian church. By the way, no, absolutely no scriptures, no Bibles in the hands and the access of the people. None. God did something very critical, very, very dramatic, and I will explain this a little further, but this is 
the state of the Christian church when Islam comes on the scene. I want to tell you, share with you, just snippets, and we will develop it tomorrow. The pages of the Quran, the Islamic holy book, have some information for the Christian church to know what was the state of the Christian church when Islam came on the scene. Before I read this passage, here's a disclaimer. I am not here to condone or condemn the religion of Islam, the prophet of Islam, or the holy book of Muslims, the Quran. All I'm here to share with you, God has provided unprecedented opportunity for the Advent movement to finish the work of the Great Commission. And how redemptive he is working among the nations. We want to be aware of what God is doing. We don't want to create our own wheel. We want to be in sync with what God is doing. Pages of the Quran are telling us what was the state of Christianity. I'm quoting from chapter 5, verse 116. This is a conversation between God, which in Arabic is Allah, and I will develop this tomorrow. In the mind of many Christians, the God of the Muslims is not the God of the Bible. He is not our God. Some say he is. Some say he is not. Some say I don't know. We need to have a biblical foundational understanding. The word Allah, see in English, we have the tendency of pretty much Americanizing everything that we pronounce, right? And we say Allah. Allah is, well, I know. Any, if No matter who pronounces it Allah, you would say absolutely nothing. But Arabs don't pronounce Allah. They say Allah. Allah. This is the word for God. Do you know what is God's word in Aramaic? Which I grew up as? Who else do you know that spoke Aramaic? Do you know what is the word for God in Aramaic? Allah. Allah. How different is that from Allah? Whereas, we Christians, <coughs> you can stone me later outside, but here's the issue. We use the word G-O-D, which we adopted and adapted from the Nordic god, Goth and Gott, G-O-T-T. Germans are still using the word G-O-T-T for God. Muslims are using the most Simplest name of God, El, which is the Hebrew name of God, El Shaddai, El Sabayot, Elohim. El is pronounced Al in Aramaic, Al in Arabic. Ha is the life attribute of God, only to God. And this is what we know. When Abram was blessed by God, his name became Abraham. When Sarah was blessed, Sarah became Sarah. Ha, Chaya in Hebrew, that's the life force of God and it's only prerogative of God. Muslims are using the most basic name of God, Allah, where we Christians are using a pagan name for the Creator and we're pointing the fingers at Muslims. Again, like I said, I'll be available for stoning outside <laughs> if you. 
This is a conversation between God and Jesus. And when Allah will say, Oh Jesus, son of Mary, did you say to the people, take me and my mother as gods besides Allah? Did you tell the people that your mother is a god? What is the obvious answer to that? No. But the pages of the Quran are telling us what was happening in the Christian world. And we are still paying a price for all this that happened 1,400 years ago. We, one of the challenges we're dealing with are the damages that were caused by the Christian church, mainly the Church of Rome. I want to put the following text on the screen. I'll read them. If you agree with them, say amen. Is that okay? You feel like saying amen? There is one God. Let's do it again. There is one God. The Bible is inspired. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the word of God. Jesus gives life. Jesus is coming back. You all agree to those? You all said amen? Well, you would say, what are these strange writings? What you said amen to are statements in the Quran, the Islamic holy book. The Quran says Jesus is coming back. No one says amen anymore. <laughs> See how we're conditioned? Truth remains truth no matter where you find it. Many Christians, including Adventists, are wondering, is the God of the Muslims the God of the Bible? God has 99 names in the Quran. I'm going to read you only six of them, and I will ask you a question at the end. The Quran says God is Al-Khaliq, he is the creator. The Quran says God is Al-Rahman, he is all-beneficent, the most merciful in essence, the compassionate, the most gracious. The Quran says God is Al-Ghadus, he is the most holy, the most pure, the most perfect. The Quran says God is Al-Ghafir, he is ever-forgiving. The Quran says God is Al-Alim, the all-knowing, the omniscient. The Quran says God is Al-Wadud, the loving, the kind one. Does this describe the God of the Bible? But is this what you see outside? Jesus said, I have other sheep. Somebody say amen to that. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice, the Lord said. And when I come, not if I come, when I come, there will be one group waiting for my return, one flock. What Christ is telling us, first of all, he doesn't say there are other sheep. He says, I have other sheep. They're mine. Don't you dare be disrespecting them. They're mine. Number two, he says they will hear my voice. Because we have preoccupied ourselves Predominantly with the Christian sector, the Lord Jesus is appearing in visions and dreams to multitudes of Muslims. Eighty of them I have done the whole documentation. One lady on the phone, she went into details of how she sees Jesus in dreams and visions. And I got irritated on one occasion. I got jealous the right word. I said, 
Why is it that we are preaching the message and yet the Lord is appearing to you in visions and dreams? Why not to us? Is that a fair question? Why not to us? She thought for a few moments, very smart Muslim woman, she said, for two reasons, I think. The areas of the world that you could comfortably do ministry are shrinking and shrinking by the day. We have no access, she said, and she's calling from a very large country, radical Muslim country. She said, our internet is up to only 56K modems. You can't even download a picture. The government shuts it down less than 20 seconds, 20, 30 times a day. There is no Christian body in this area, she said. No church, nothing. Television show is the only thing we get. She said, in those cases, he appears to us in visions and dreams himself. And I will share with you one experience that we are engaged with by God's grace, and I want to share that with you tomorrow. She said the second reason why he doesn't appear to you and he appears to us, maybe you're not as desperate as we are. Is there a nugget of truth to that? I have others too. They will hear my voice. If the church is preoccupied with other things, he will appear to them himself. Two years ago, we are in the days of Ramadan. Two years ago, Ramadan, I was in Huntsville, Alabama with 25 other pastors from other Christian uh, Adventist churches at Oakwood University. We were doing a conference for Christian and Muslim relations. The local mosque in Huntsville invited us to join them for the iftar dinner. It's the dinner that they break the fast at the end of the day. Some of our pastors and some individuals from North American division were very apprehensive, very worried because they had never been to a mosque before. Uh, you wouldn't believe some of, the, some of the rhetoric, man. How do we know we're going to come out alive? How do we know if our car is going to be there? How are we going to do this? I told them, I said, it's my conclusion, you've got to do this. The food is out of this world. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. So we went, 25 of us. We sat across, you know, those long tables we have for fellowship hall. We sat on one side. And they were, Muslims were sitting right across from us. We're eating. Some of our pastors were sitting on there, you know. <laughs> so I was engaged with a conversation with an Egyptian, a Moroccan, and a Palestinian Muslim. That mosque, that day, there were over 650 young and old men, women, that had fasted, had not left the mosque, had fasted and prayed all day, and they were breaking the fast together that evening. I leaned over to Pastor Ernest Castillo, Vice President of North American Division. I said, Pastor Castillo, when was the last time you saw 650 Adventists fasting and praying together in church, not leaving the church? But that's another story for another day. We won't get into that. So I'm having this conversation with the three guys across. It was two years ago. ISIS 
had just began circulating in America, the war in the Middle East. And so I'm having, you know, we're talking politics. Maybe half hour in our conversation, I felt the urge to change the course of the conversation. So without consulting with my superior, I leaned over the table to the Palestinian Muslim and I said, what do you think of Jesus? And I sat back. You should have seen the looks on some of our pastors. <laughs> you know, you're going to get us killed, you know? The man was eating when I asked him the question. He put his fork and spoon down, pushed the plate back, grabbed his jacket. He said, Jesus, he's a special prophet to us Muslims. I said, what makes him special? He said, He's unique. There's no one like him. I said, where is he now? By now, the ice is melting in our camp, you know, <laughs> a sigh of relief, you know. I said, where is he now? He said, in heaven, of course. Every Muslim knows that. Standing closest to God's throne. I said, what does he do in heaven? He ran his fingers in his beard and he said, he's enjoying himself. I said, what else does he do besides enjoying himself? He ran his fingers in his beard again, and he said, you don't know. The Quran doesn't tell us. Nobody had asked him that question because he knew there is something missing. I said, so he said, we don't know what he does, but he must be doing something unique. And here are 25 Adventist pastors with the sanctuary message in a mosque at Ramadan, they can't believe their eyes and ears. What they're the next day we're in Oakwood University. Oh, before we finish. So I said, so what is next for Jesus? He opened his arms like this. He said, Inshallah, God willing, we're waiting for his return. Every time I get I say this, I get this goosebump. You know, a Muslim man during Ramadan in a mosque. Among 650 Muslims, facing Adventist ministers, telling them we're waiting for his return. The next day, we're in Oakwood University. We're having a board meeting. Pastor Ernest Castillo, vice president of the North American Division, he gets up and he says, you know, uh, those of you who know him, he's a funny guy. You know, he's, but he couldn't, he couldn't help himself. He said, I'm a changed man. Did you hear that guy last night at the mosque? They're waiting for Jesus to come back. Aren't we waiting for Jesus to come back? Then why is it they're there and we're here? Why is it that we're enemies? Why is it that we kill each other? And my question to you is, why? I want to finish with this part. I want to pick it up tomorrow. You come into the picture. You know what? I want to give you the, the little preview because I want you to see. You know, the last 15 minutes of Pastor Grant's lecture yesterday that was without recording, can I make up for it? Huh? Oh, record. 
Okay, can I make up for it? Okay, that, it didn't work, so. <laughs> Do you mind? I, I'll finish by 30. I'll finish at the bottom of the hour. Would, would that be okay? I want, you to, I want you to see something. I don't want you to miss this. So let me. Fifteen hundred. God did another unusual thing. And because of this unusual thing, we're all sitting here today. The Protestant Reformation was in its infancy. Had just begun. Catholics had just begun reading the Bible and they were making firm steps to stand for the truth. The Roman church was uneasy. It had all the military might in the world. It owned all of Europe, all of all the monarchies of Europe. It had every means to crush the Reformation. Had it not been for God intervening, we would have still paid our life savings to a priest to absolve us of our sins. God did something very dramatic. As the Roman church was about to crush and destroy the Reformation, on the east was rising the Muslim Ottoman Empire. If not greater, but equal the size of the Roman army. And the Roman church was faced with a dilemma. Go after all these Bible-reading reformers, pull them out, smoke them out, or deal with this huge monster that is rising from the east. And the decision was very simple. We have to deal with the Ottoman Muslims for survival. And what happened to the Reformation? It survived, it thrived, and we're all sitting here. God put a hedge over the Protestant Reformation, and he still has that hedge around the Reformation, while even the Protestants are raising the hand, trying to clasp the hand of the papacy. Once again, he is still using the same hedge. And I will tell you right after this subject. He protected the Reformation by deflecting the attention of the Rome to the Ottoman Muslims, the Reformation survived, it thrived. Because of this inter intervention of God, we have access to the most sacred of all treasures, the Bible. If it wasn't for this intervention of God, we would not have known, for by grace, somebody say amen, for by grace you are saved, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. You don't have to pay your life savings to this so that no one can boast. If it wasn't for this intervention of God, we would not have known who the savior of the world is. God used the Muslims to put a hedge around the sacred Reformation Protestant movement so that we can sit here freely with clear consciences by God's grace, enjoying this immense eternal gift, yet we have forgotten how we got here. We have forgotten what God did to make this, make sure this comes about. Is this how we pay our dues to Muslims, in your opinion? If he used them, if he has used the descendants of Ishmael at critical times in history, and I gave you some examples, 
to make sure that the other descendants, the other children, are protected. Is there, is there a due? Is there a payment due? Is there a debt to be paid? While the church is still thinking about this, he did another incredible thing back in June of last year. 11 months ago, no, a year ago, almost a year ago. You know this iconic statue that is hallmark of the Adventist church? You know when the statue got to the feet of the iron and clay? The Lord said, this division will never unite. It's our understanding, it's our historical understanding that those toes are the division of Rome, which is today's Europe. For the last thousand years, Europeans have tried to defy God. No, we will unite. 1000 AD, Charlemagne come on the scene, killed over 10 million Europeans, tried to unite Europe, wasn't able. Then came Napoleon, killed over 20 million Europeans, tried to unite Europe, wasn't able. Then came Kaiser Wilhelm, World War I, killed over 30 million Europeans, they weren't able to unite. Then came the sadistic lunatic Adolf Hitler, killed almost 80 million Europeans. My God, 80 million Europeans. Tried to unite Europe, wasn't able. Finally, in 1953, the final finalized version of that in 1993, Europeans said, let's unite, but not with shed shedding of the blood, with money. Let's unite. And so they did. Started with six countries, got to 10 countries, got to 15, 28 countries. And for the last 23 years, 23 years, Adventists, including myself, many pastors that I know, were perplexed. Did we understand this book right? Did we understand its interpretations? We understood it. They will never unite, but they have united. It's over two decades they have united. Many people were thrown into turmoil in the Adventist church. Did we understand this? Let's not talk about Daniel anymore. Let's not talk about Revelation anymore. We don't think we got this right. No, 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 no. God did something for you to be affirmed. You are in the right path. You are in the right faith. You just need to wake up. You know what he did? Great Britain, the bulwark of the union, said, you know, we've had enough of this union. It's crippling our economy. You talk to any European, you talk to any Brit, anywhere in the world, why did Britain pull out? You know what they would tell you? The immigration of millions of Muslims to Europe. God is using the descendants of Ishmael once again to make sure his word comes to pass and he wants his church to know that he's using them for his glory. He's using millions of Muslims to make sure his plans succeed. Howard, there's a turn to this. The descendants of Ishmael are going through an incredible time. Just in the last five years in the country of Syria and Iraq, 1.5 million, some experts say 2 million, have been killed. 280,000 children. That's over four generations wiped out. No end at sight. The country of Syria, my humble belief, 
I'm not a pessimist. My, my humble belief is the country of Syria will never be rebuilt. The destruction, they equal it to World War II. Muslims killing Muslims. Shiites killing Sunnis. Radicals killing moderates. ISIS beheading everybody and anybody in between. Muslims are asking, whose brand of Islam is the right Islam to follow? Why are Muslims killing each other? Why are they killing everybody else along with it? Why such turmoil? This is unprecedented in the history of Islam. It's incredible that the Quran, the very book that many, many Christian pastors burn, has this to say. This is where you come into the picture. And I will finish with this. This is a passage taken from the Quran, the chapter that is called Yunus. God is speaking to Muhammad, the prophet of Islam. Let me give you a little background. Many Muslim scholars believe that at times, Prophet Muhammad was confused. The revelations that he was receiving, are they from God or are they from Satan? His first wife, Khadija, told him, ask God and he will give you a verse. Ba based on this verse, you can tell what is right and what is wrong. And this is the verse that God gives him. Pay close attention. God is speaking to Muhammad. If you are in doubt about what we have revealed to you, ask those who read the book before you. The truth has come to you from your Lord. Therefore, do not be a doubter, nor shall you be one who rejects the signs of Allah, for then you shall be lost. God is telling to Muhammad, in times of confusion, in doubt, talk to the people who read the book that was given before your time. The whole entire Quran describes what that book is, Torah, Psalms, and the Gospels. Torah, Psalms, and the Gospels. What book is this? The Bible. The Quran is telling 1.7 billion Muslims around the globe, in time of confusion, like now, talk to the people who read the Bible. But hold on. What kind of people read the Bible? Torah, Psalms, and the Gospels. Christians, are we in agreement? Christians are the ones that read. But pay close attention. Look at what happens here. Not all Christians are the same. Among the people of the book, among Christians, is a community standing in obedience, reciting the verses of Allah, God, during the period of the night and prostrating in prayer. The Quran says, not everyone who reads the Bible or is Christian is really the Christian. According to the Quran, not all Christians are the same. Among Christianity, there is a community. Doesn't bow to idols, it only prostrates before God. They are known to be people of prayer. They believe in Allah, they believe in God, and the last day. According to the Quran, the last day is the day that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. That's called the last day according to the Quran. They talk about the last day. They enjoin what is right. They do the right thing. Forbid what is wrong. They hasten to good deeds among the righteous. Whatever good they do, never will it be removed from them. Allah knows the righteous. 
The Quran says, in time of confusion, Muslims should talk to the people who read the Bible. But not everyone who reads the Bible. According to the Quran, among the people who read the Bible, there is a community. Doesn't worship idols. They are known to be people of prayer. They talk about the end times. They still do the right that God has written. They don't do what God says. Don't. These are among the righteous. Talk to these people in time of confusion and doubt. My question to you is this. Who do you think the Quran is talking about? We want to say the Adventists, right? But it will defeat the purpose if you do. It will be like Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown one time said, I'm so humble, I'm proud of it. <laughs> Let others say it's the Adventists. And this is what happened to me two years ago in Los Angeles. I was in the largest mosque in the west coast of America in Los Angeles. I was there to represent our church for a Christian Muslim conference. It's a big, huge mosque. And it's divided into two sections. The right side is what we call the fellowship. And the left side, it was the prayer room. As I walked in, I noticed in the fellowship hall, there were already Christian leaders from Episcopalian Church, Catholic Church, Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church, bishops and priests and so forth. I walked in, and the host of the entire program, the presiding imam or the pri presiding cleric of this program, his name is Dr. Jihad Turk. His name is Jihad. <laughs> but he's far from anything violent. He's greeting the people coming in. I mean, he's, a, he's dean of Islamic studies at Claremont University. The guy's a big-time guy. He's shaking the guy's people's hands. He shook my hand, and he said, what church do you represent, brother? I said, I'm a minister of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. As soon as I said that, he started squeezing my hand, pulled me out of the line. You know, a whole lot of things went through my mind, you know? <laughs> came to my ear as I'm standing in God's house. This is God's house because God's people are here. The man came to my ear. I mean, there's a whole lot of things going on, you know, in the fellowship and all. Comes to my ear and he says, I'm Dr. Jihad Turk. I'll be the presiding imam of, this, of the conference. You don't know me. I don't know you. But I've read the Bible cover to cover. I have not come across a single passage that says Christians should honor Sunday. But I've come across hundreds of statements of Sabbath, Seventh Day, the Lord's Day, and it's all in the context of sacredness and holiness. And I'm like, where is this guy going with this? And it's only you guys that do what this book says. He kind of turned around and he said, what's up with these guys? <laughs> How come they don't do what this book says? Are you the people of the book? Yes. Are you the people of the book? Yes. If you are, then you, be you better, you better get back to the book. Because Bible reading is down in the Adventist church by 40%. 40% down. Can you improve on those numbers? Get back to the word. The Bible tells us there will be a famine of God's word. 
God's word is telling us and is telling Muslims who are watching that among Christians there's this community. One Muslim cleric man said, you don't eat pork, we don't eat pork. You don't drink alcohol, we don't drink alcohol. You don't gamble, we don't gamble. You don't smoke, you know we're not supposed to smoke. <laughs> so he paused a little bit and said, my brother, you're a Muslim. You're a Muslim. No, we're, well, hold on a second. God is not hung up on titles. You have Seventh-day Adventist there? You're fine. You're great. You, you got Methodist? No, no, no. You got, no. God doesn't care for titles. He cares for the characteristic. I want to finish with one story. I want to finish with one story that is going on right now. Right now. I cannot give too much information due to security nature of this work we do. November 2005, 12 years ago, less than 12 years ago. I'll spare you all the details. In the country of Saudi Arabia, a very, very wealthy and influential Wahhabi Saudi businessman. Wahhab is the same dynasty that gave birth to Osama bin Laden and is also sponsoring so much of the bloodshed that is going on in the Middle East. A man from this persuasion is on his way to the noon prayer. Turn of events, like I said, tomorrow if we have, if we have time, I'll give you the details. Angel Gabriel appears to this man as he is about to enter his car. I was like you too. Yeah, Angel Gabriel. Uh-huh. Yeah. He's supposed to appear to us. You know, we own this whole thing, you know. No, you don't own Jesus. Jesus owns you, and he owns many other sheep. The angel Gabriel had an encounter with this man. I mean, with fire and the whole thing, it, it's, it's like mind-numbing. He says, at the end of this encounter, the angel repeat, repeated one phrase, and I'm translating it. Do not harm those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Christ. Don't harm those who keep the commandments of God, who have the faith of Esau and Messi, Jesus the Christ. Kept repeating, repeating, and he says the fire dissipated, and he disappeared. This man, he said, I did not want to use the internet because I can be probed. I didn't want to use my phones or mobile apps or anything like that. He's an extremely wealthy man. He smuggles the Bible in Arabic into Saudi Arabia. Paid over $6,800 for that one copy. And in average Adventist homes, we have nine, nine Bibles stacked on top of each other. Brand new. Brand new. <laughs> With coffee mug stains. But <laughs> he spends $6,800. He smuggles a Bible in Arabic into it. He says, as soon as I got the packet, I ripped it open. And I started frantically going through the pages, hoping to find something that would remotely resemble what the angel had told me about a month ago. He couldn't find anything that resembled. Where does it say in the Bible, here's the patience of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus? Where does it say? At the end, right? He doesn't know. So he says, I started from the very beginning. <laughs> I 
scoured through the whole Bible, by the time I found that phrase, I already had come to faith in Jesus. I was already observing the Sabbath day holy, and I was dictating it to my 800 employees. Do not come to work on Sabbath day. I'll give the government the explanation. Don't come to work on, on Sabbath day. Twelve years ago, I get goosebumps every time I say, today, you and I have over 15,000 underground Muslim believers in Christ observing the Sabbath day holy, waiting for his return. And they're not called Seventh-day Adventists. In fact, they came across an Adventist about three, four years ago. The message is one. The truth is one. God is a redeeming God. He knows the challenges that the church is facing. And so when and where we need help, he appears. But please, I beg of you, consider enlarging your prayers. God is a God outside of the parameters of the Christian church. I will share the rest with you tomorrow. If you want to learn, if you want to be educated, if you want to be trained in how to do this, based on the scriptures, based on the Bible, I invite you to be here at 4 o'clock. We will have question and answer in between the sections. So whatever questions that has been occupying your mind would like to be addressed, as long as I can physically address it, I will address it. Um, and I'm hoping that our today's presentation has been a blessing to you. I like to gauge my work. How many of you have been blessed by what you heard and seen today? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, you will be happy to come back. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. In Arabic, may the peace of God, may all the blessings of God, and may all the mercies of God be upon you and upon this house. Thank you.